and welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. This is your host, James, and today I've got Stefan Papadakis with me from Papadakis Racing. Stefan, thank you so much for making the time for me on this. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. It's, it's been really good, and I also appreciate uh, one of my former podcast guests, John Subal, making the reach out to you and connecting us so we can get on to, to have this conversation. And I could dig deep into your automotive history, so to speak. Let's do it. So with that being the case, how did you get into this crazy thing called cars and drifting and drag racing and all that? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Uh, even So I started off racing RC cars, radio-controlled cars, when I was, oh, man, 12, 13 years old. So were you a Tamiya guy or a Kyosho guy? Which, which field were you in? Tamiya. And even before that, though, I mean, I remember being, geez, I think third grade and the first time i saw a radio controlled car yeah. i was like i gotta have one of those yeah and uh it just cars struck me at an early age and it's interesting because i never had any family that was really into cars mm -hmm. uh, but just something inside of me was it gravitated towards it and then i mean i started with uh i think it was the hornet was the base model you can get from tammy at the time when i got mine and i think i got the frog I had a frog, and the frog dog hopper. bones always fell out of the thing. Yeah, yeah, everything. So, I mean, obviously, so you were obviously on the uh, the off-roading side of it then. And is that where you stayed on the RC side, or did you go more onto the track aspect? Because I got into it because my dad was really big into slot cars. Interesting. No, I was really into the off-road. I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, mm -hmm. and uh, like 10 minutes away in, in Costa Mesa, California, was this place called RCH, Radio Controlled Hobbies. Okay. And in the, what would that be, like the late 80s, yeah. it was the mecca for uh, RC car industry because Team Associated was here in Southern California. Mm -hmm. um, team Losi started down here in Southern California. There was a lot of teams... Uh, Pro, pro racers. I sure. mean, it was just really strong industry. Yeah, I just always remember when you had to charge the batteries, and if you first started out, you got that nine-hour charger, so you really had to prepare yourself to when you wanted to spend those, like, 12 minutes of fun with your car. So I'd, we'd go out to the off-road track, Yeah. and there was no power there, so yeah. my mom would bring me, and we'd pop the hood of the car and hook <laughs> up the charger to the battery, and that's how you would charge it was, it was from your automotive battery. So I'm guessing that probably worked a little bit quicker then as well. <laughs> Yes. And it was absolutely safe. Nothing at all wrong with that. <laughs> Safety first, always. It, I had no idea what I was doing. And yeah. my mom didn't know what we were doing. And we're just, we look around. I'm like, okay, well, you, could take the, you open the hood and you That's put the alligator did. clips onto the battery. And Works like a dream. <laughs> yep. And so where did you go then from the RC cars? Did you start, you started small? Did you go faster and faster? Did you go from like battery powered to electric powered and then gas powered? How, how deep did you dive into RC cars? So by the time I was 14 years old, a freshman in high school, I had several friends that were professional RC car racers. And okay. I said, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Yeah. And mom, I want to go to do home study so I can be at the RC track more. Okay. And she's like, uh, are you sure that's what you want to do? I don't know if you're going to have that much of a social life. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't understand what she meant. Sure. But I think she meant, how are you going to get a girlfriend later yeah. if you're sure, just racing RC cars yeah. <laughs> forever? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I decided to not do that. Okay. And then about the time that I turned 15, at the RC car track, some of the guys started coming with modified Hondas, like lowered, and there was like a good dude with a Mustang, and another sure. guy with like a V8-powered Datsun pickup truck. Yep. And I was like, wait a minute. All the stuff that we've been doing to the RC cars, you can do to real cars? Yeah. And then soon I'm going to be able to drive? 
that's what I want to do. And then you just realize that it costs a little bit more money to do it with the big cars than it does with the small cars. It took a, a yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and finance is like click in at that point. And and you know, I realized pretty soon that, you know, when I turn sixteen I'm not getting a Mustang or a Camaro. Yeah. I'm gonna have something used and something a little more economical. Sure. Uh, maybe something a little slower. So my first car was a Honda Civic SI. Okay. Which at the time in two thousand or sorry, nineteen ninety three when I turned sixteen. Nineteen ninety three. Yeah. Um what year was the Civic? Ninety one. Okay. So it was a two year old used car, but in 1993, that was the car that everybody was modifying, mm-hmm. which was the Honda Civics, Integras, things like that. Sure. My mom didn't know that. <laughs> She's like, okay, I'm going to get a Honda Civic, and they're reliable. Yeah, they're small, they're compact, they're friendly, they're good on gas. Not What could go wrong here? So the RC car, call it, quote-unquote, like career ended at that point, yeah. and my street racing career started. Street race. Okay, so obviously, and then when you did street race, you just stuck to the speed limit never went over the speed limit and that was it you were quickly racing as fast as you could to the speed limit am i correct no absolutely not so look so the, and, the and statutes you, you, of limitations they've gone back a while now it's fine i've, I've told the story before you know no I, look what happens in my situation when and a lot of my friends as well you know when you don't have money to go out to the racetrack and th- really at, at in southern california there weren't many racetracks to go to even no. if you had money yep uh and you want to race your car and you want to speed the street races the drag street races were where it happened yeah and uh it got bit by that scene and was just like loved it i mean the the fast and furious movie was definitely Hollywood. It was blown up for the Hollywood movie, but there was the cool people, and there mm-hmm. was actually girls that were not that good looking. But there was actually sometimes girls out there, and everybody would, you know, show up to the the meeting areas that were gas stations or or Denny's late at night or wherever, and and there was the whole scene. Yeah, the crazy cars rolling up, and the different crews of people, and there would be. You know, the people from Monterey Park were like the Asians and like there was the white kids from Huntington Beach where I'm from or, or the Long Beach guys or the, the it was the regional people mm-hmm. and the different cars that they drove, whether they were like Toyota Supras and the high end MR2s and turbocharged things or, you know, the Hondas and Acuras that was like my crew or but it was also mostly all import cars and they yeah. would all congregate congregate to the one area and it was this mix of different Southern California cultures all in one place. Sure. And so what, So you've got your Civic Si. You're like, you know, what's the first thing that you did to your car when you, had the, when you said, you know what, I've modified my RC cars. This is totally fine. What can I do now? I've got my big one. Yep. So the first thing we did uh, was lowered it because lowered it? it was free. Because okay. what we did was you take the suspension off, you take the spring off, you cut a couple of coils off of Which, the spring. Totally fine. What could possibly go wrong at that point? <laughs> and you put it back together. And, and I had friends that had the tools and knew how to do it. And um, It was totally safe. Totally reliable. And it gives you the best ride ever. And the springs are definitely designed for that. What if you take a few coils? Like, totally fine. I felt like the, we all felt the cars handled better as you, when you lowered it like that. The sure. spring rate goes up when you make the – without getting too technical – uh, you end up with a stiffer spring, yep. and the car ends up lower, so there's a lower center of gravity. We mm-hmm. didn't really understand any of this. We just liked it for the looks. Sure. Uh, but the cars actually did handle, I think, a little bit better when you lowered them slightly. We actually got to the point, though, where we would kept lowering them, and we didn't realize, like, as you kept cutting the spring, eventually 
the shock runs out of travel, and you're not even touching the spring anymore. You're just sitting on the bump stop. Yes. Uh, but we didn't understand that at the time. Yeah. There's things you learn, you know, after after a few calls. It's what could possibly go wrong. I mean, and then so obviously, so you've got it. You're lowered Civic now, and then what? Where did it go from lowering? What was the next step? Where did this roll along? Tell me the path to where you go from getting your mum's just give me the keys to your car to a six second Civic on the racetrack. Oh jeez. Uh, okay, so the first modification was uh, lowered the car, then we put a HKS um, air filter kit on it to get sure. a little bit more power. Everything after that you was- didn't, uh, The my, stickers didn't go first to get those 10, 20 extra horsepower with the stickers, that didn't work? Nah, because then you're kind of like a poser. You don't uh, want to roll up with these always, decals and looking fast. I always thought it was like a shopping list. I was like, for someone who want to borrow the stuff off my car and not tell me about it. <laughs> so, so I came from a scene of like, a surfer kind of scene mm -hmm. in Southern California or in Huntington Beach where it was more about being understated. Okay. I, this was just as it was switching from fluorescent wetsuits yep. to all black wetsuits and white surfboards. Okay. And when you went out, you didn't wear, you weren't flashy. You mm -hmm. just surfed well. Sure. So uh, that's kind of the personality that I kind of took, which was let, do it instead of claim it. Sure, and I'm guessing also for street racing, you probably want to maybe sell yourself a little under the radar if you're going to be street racing or coming up against someone else. Not, yes, not just for competing against people, but for trying to not get tickets just driving down the road. Yeah, I mean, the whole course <laughs> of it, obviously, then driving away afterwards after you, and whatnot. Yeah, so there was, uh, I mean, we can spend hours talking about the subtleties of the street racing scene, but... Uh, different people had their different different uh, uh, ways that they would be flashy, and I would just try to beat people at the street races. And it took a while, you know. I was an idiot and and didn't know how to drive well, so sure. it was six months or a year of just practicing. And I would go out to the industrial areas in the middle of the night on like a random weeknight to just practice my launches to see yeah. how I could get better because I kept getting beat at the launch. I was like, okay, if I can get better at launching the car. That seemed to be most of the drag race right there. Yeah. So I had to work on that. Um, and then in this process of you starting the street racing, doing the street, uh, practicing, did you what, what did you happen to break? Did you break anything? Yeah, it was a constant cycle of trying to make more horsepower. So it was uh, the intake and then the exhaust system and like spark plug wires and spark plugs. And then I realized, oh, if we put nitrous on it, it'll just go way faster right away. Because, I mean, what I was sort of angling at is obviously when you do these things, you probably didn't tell your mother about these things but then she's like Stefan why does the car keep breaking down all the time what's wrong with it why is it so loud yeah yeah um, like, mama just it just happened just goes like that these days <laughs> it's what the cool the kids are doing so you put nitrous on on the civic and totally made obviously much quicker yes and because I one of my uh extended family members she put nitrous on her Mustang because all the cool kids were doing it at school and then didn't realize that sometimes if you kept spinning the wheels, that they the tire degrades. And then if you have a wet road and you sh press the nitrous button that's on your dashboard, that it might give you a little bit more horsepower in that V6 Mustang that might push you into a curb, blow the wheel, cause the car to have an accident. And then you have to explain that several years later. Jamie, I'm talking to you this time. Yeah, Jamie. I mean, uh, when you get a Mustang, I think that's just part of it. Yeah. You run over a curb. Yeah. Or sideways. Hope, and hopefully not into a crowd of people, which seems to be the thing now. <laughs> they're leaving car mates. Um, uh, so the nitrous made the car much quicker. Yeah. And um, 
in the start of the cycle of more horsepower, sure. and then what breaks next? The clutch. Yeah. So we need a clutch, and then you break a transmission, and then you fix that. Then you need more more, more tires, yeah. and then more power again, and then more power again, and and so there was a constant yeah. uh, cycle of of more power breaking break. stuff, and then eventually you break the engine, and then the car is down, and now that's the expensive part. Sure. Uh, so eventually, by the time I was 18 years old, um, my uh, 18, probably 19 years old. My streetcar had turned into a full race car. Sure. I was living at my girlfriend at the time's house, mm-hmm. uh, carpooling with her in her car. Okay. And it was just, but all I cared about was I want to make my car faster. I want to go to the, by by the time I was 18, I realized that street racing wasn't the future. Sure. I by the So I got my license the day I turned 16. Mm-hmm. The day I turned 18, it was suspended longer than I had it. Because I got so many tickets, and I sure. drive on a suspended license, and I get another ticket, and and but I actually had this epiphany one night at the street races, and I looked around, and I said, "Look, I I wanted, I don't know if it was this clear, but it was like, I want to race cars forever. Sure, this is not where you do it. No, um, and I didn't express that to any friends or anything like that, but somehow just it, some intuitively, I kicked in like dumbass yeah you know what are you doing this is not the future and at the same time they started becoming uh they started having the battle of the imports events at palmdale okay and i attended one of those and i said you know what that's where i need to be i need to go and go to the track and get the notoriety or at least try to go fast there i think there's more of a future there because i didn't want to be an old street racing dude yeah because i mean they've just got their own discovery tv show now and that's a different story altogether uh <laughs> Look, I'm not saying there's no future in that, and obviously there's people doing looks like professional street racing, but it looks more like they're actors and uh, personalities than they are pro street racers. But within the circle that I was looking sure. at, I said that's not the future for me. Obviously, yes. And if you want to legitimize yourself, and uh, like you saw in the Fast and Furious movies, maybe that that led to other things. So maybe you want to go a legitimate career, and if they've got this magazine called Super Street that promotes other things. You may be going in a different direction, right? Yeah, that that movie. I don't know if the word parallels right, but it it it's there were a lot of pieces of that that definitely um, uh, parrot or or are similar to the way that I grew up. And and there's many enthusiasts that grew up street racing. That that's their story too. That's sure. why that's such an amazing movie because a lot of people can relate to different components of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, friend of the podcast and guest, Busy Moto. He told me that's the same thing. He was like, he started doing it. He, I mean, Busy was all about his thing and how he liked the science aspect behind it. And I, I appreciate that with his many, many, many degrees that he has and so many letters after his name. But like you say, everyone has their own way of coming into it. Exactly. But so you went to the track. So how did it, and you full-time race car now, getting the track, Where? how do you start the progress of getting into the series or where you started and want to say, well, this is where I want to go. This is the direction I want to be in. So the the uh, drag racing scene, the import drag racing scene at that time in the mid-90s was basically who had the fastest whatever, fill in the blank. Sure. Uh, not ni- nitrous car or turbo car or whatever. So I always said, I want to just have the fastest front-wheel drive car, mm-hmm. the quickest front-wheel drive car, and um, eventually built the car up enough uh, where we put a, a, a 2.2-liter Prelude VTEC engine in the little Civic, yep. turbocharged, 
and went out there and ran 10 sixes in the quarter mile at like 130 something miles an hour. And I would think I was like second fastest front wheel drive. I think it was Tony Fuchs and maybe Dave Sheen, a couple of others. Uh, but the, by that time, the car was so destroyed from being modified so much and mm -hmm. street raced and working on it, not knowing what I was doing, properly modifying the car. Uh, it just looked terrible. And, but it was quick. Sure. Um, and met a gentleman named uh, Sean Carlson. Uh, he was writing and f taking photos for Turbo Magazine at the time, but but a, a great fabricator on the side. Mm -hmm. And he was a couple of years older than me. I was probably 20, 20 or 21. He's like 24, 25. And uh, he said, hey, you need some help with the car. And I said, yeah, I need some help with fabrication. He said, okay. What ended up happening is we started working on my Civic together, and it snowballed from let's tube frame a little bit of like the front frame rail into like this whole tube chassis car and changing the body into a 1998 Civic. It was like this whole eight month project. Mm -hmm. And eventually what came out of it was the yellow front wheel drive tube chassis first into the nine second quarter mile Civic that we had built. Um, and again, we spent hours talking about this, but essentially we had built, one of the first tube chassis front wheel drive cars that was really lightweight. Okay. We had already made good horsepower. And so I just took the engine and transmission that was in that 10 second car and put it into this really lightweight tube chassis car. And we went out and ran, I think nine eighties in the quarter mile at like 140 something miles an hour, the first event out. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of set the industry, the scene on fire, right? This was at the time when, the import or the, the sport compact magazines like super street and turbo magazine. And, and I think this is even before import tuner, but these magazines and, and videos and all this stuff were really just looking for, uh, content and battle the imports and these drag racing events were, where they would get the content from. Sure. And we're out there now the fastest front wheel drive vehicle in this at the time, brand new body style in this super bright yellow paint scheme. Um, and it was something that they would put on the covers and they would do features and, and interviews on how we built the car. And it became iconic within the sport compact scene. And we continued to do the different battle of the imports and then the uh, Naira and IRA uh, events. And then later the NHRA sport compact events. Mm -hmm. And we would go out there and beat all of these rear wheel drive cars with, with this front wheel drive Honda. And it was just a phenomenon. Um, and, and, because of all of this exposure, we're able to go out with help from uh, Frank Choi, which was the one that ran Battle of the Imports. He was okay. savvy. He was already bringing sponsors into the events. Yep. And I said, look, I'd love to do all of your events, especially the ones that you're start starting to do now on the East Coast, but I need some funding to get there. And he helped really get what we'd call like Papadakis Racing off the ground, okay. uh, where it turned into a professional outfit where we're actually bringing in sponsors and putting the decals in the car and then going out and, and competing at these events. And who was your first professional sponsor that you had then? Who was the first one like put the hand up for it? Uh, we the first sponsors were Gretty Performance Projects, mm -hmm. who were around, and DVS Shoe Company okay. actually. Um, and then and soon after that was uh, AEM. Yeah, who uh, still we, who we still work with, with today. Sure. And so obviously you're taking the car around the country now, and it's getting that was probably the height of Sport Compact drag racing is where it is now. Oh, at the time, I should say back then, that was like the height of 
where it's all happening. All yeah, so this was probably now we're back. We're up to like probably year two thousand, mm-hmm. uh, year two thousand one. We're really peaking, and then the Fast and the Furious movie comes out, the original. Yep, and that just took the automotive aftermarket scene to like the next level, like three levels up, because uh, now instead of it just being a California, Florida, New Jersey thing, it hit the Midwest, it hit the South, it hit basically everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, and it was now not just Hondas and Acuras and Toyotas and everything. All of a sudden, it was Chevys and Fords and Dodges. And then soon after that, you know, within the next year or two, Chevy came in and then Ford came in and they said, hey, we're going to market to this young demographic and we're going to give them a car that fits this scene. So you had the, the, the Ford Focus and the Toyota Cavalier, sorry, the Chevy Cavalier and the Dodge Neon and then the SRT4. Yep. And then they had professional front wheel drive drag racing teams so it was just an explosion over the next uh uh call it three to five years and so when you were going in through that ride in that train so to speak of going through the drag racing scene you had the honda civic and then where did you go where did you take that car when you took it for it was the first a 10 second car then it went to a nine second car and then how did you progress going moving forward then to get where you sort of made your farewell out of the drag racing scene so to speak yep so uh we continued to work on that that hatchback car, mm-hmm. but it had a prelude transmission, and we kept breaking it once we got into the eight-second quarter mile. And we okay. said, okay, we need to build a new car with a more robust transmission. Uh, so we actually worked with, with Honda in 2001 uh, and built a 2001 Civic Coupe with a more robust transmission, a different configuration. Without getting all technical, it was a car that was, had more potential. Eventually, uh, we ran... 8.12 in the quarter mile at 184 miles an hour. Sure. Uh, but as all this front wheel drive stuff was happening, the corner of my eye, I'm watching the pro rear wheel drive, which were basically tube chassis rear wheel drive cars with four cylinder and, and six cylinder turbocharged engines making 1200 to 1600 horsepower, sure. which were the fastest cars at these import sport compact events. And I said, you know what? I don't want to just be the front wheel, fastest front wheel drive car. I want to be the fastest at the event. Okay. Because I, I looked over to NHRA and I said, well, who are the, who's the premier over there? It's the funny cars and the top fuels. The pro stocks are cool and all, but the funny cars are like the ones with the biggest sponsors. And they're the people, they're, they're yeah. the real attention grabbers. And I felt like in our scene, it was those rear-wheel drive cars. So we started building a, uh, a re- tube chassis rear-wheel drive Civic with a, the Acura NSX engine, the V6, mm-hmm. twin turbo. Okay. Um, and the engine made 1,600 horsepower. It was built by AEM, Advanced Engine Management, AEM Electronics, essentially. Sure. The founder of AEM built that engine here. And, uh, and we went out there, and, and I basically moved from front-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive over the next three years. And we were record-breaking in the, in the rear-wheel drive and the Honda scene. Um, we didn't win any championships with that, but we definitely uh, were record-breakers, and we won several events. Um, and at the corner of my eye, I'm, I'm looking for something else. I said, you sure. know, I've been drag racing since the year, uh, until since 16. And now I'm, you know, 24, 25 years old. I'm kind of getting burnt out of drag racing. I keep traveling around the United States and everywhere I go, it's another quarter mile straight piece of road. Yep. Kind of want to make some turns. Sure. Eventually it's going to come up. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, the, the NHRA sport compact series which was the premier series at the moment you know this would be 2005 2004 2005 uh was having a little bit of trouble grabbing 
having building the events. Sure. And a bit of that was the issue of us not always having the best show. When I say us, it's us racers. So mm-hmm. we were always trying to make the cars faster, which would make the cars sometimes unreliable and yeah. break down and Funny oil enough. down the track. Yeah. And there'd be delays in the show. And uh, first, because whoever's, if you've not, if anyone of the listeners hasn't been to a drag racing event, if someone spits like fuel, uh, like not fuel, but liquids on the track. I mean, it takes a while to get that dried out, cleared up, so the track's prepared again for the next race to go down, right? I mean, it's not a short... I mean, the race is short, but if there's an accident or an incident, then it can take some time to go between, which is no one's fault. It's just that's you, you want the best surfs to be racing on if you're going 180-plus miles an hour to get those times. Exactly. And, and the scene changed. It mm-hmm. went from who's got the fastest whatever to now we're getting more general public to show up to these events and they just want a good show sure they might not know who's got the fastest whatever they just want to see some fast cars go down the track and Mm -hmm. if you keep braking and having these big delays so i had a story of my mom came to an event at pomona in southern california here and it was 2005 or 2004 and it wasn't sunny southern california day it was a beautiful day and there kept being kind of delays and she's like hey you know i like watching your race but i think i'm gonna take off now because there's not a lot happening, and it's hot, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And I said, okay, love you. I'll yeah. see you later. I understood. But it was realizing, like, look, if I we can't grab the attention of your mom, of my mom, then <laughs> maybe... probably a pretty big backer of your endeavors at this stage. Yeah, so, you know, which, I mean, uh, emotionally backing. That's what I mean. But, it's not yeah, financially, no, no, it was, no, we were... That's what I mean, no, emotionally backed. Its yeah. parents are never going to be really... I mean, they start, <laughs> yes, but probably they'll get... They, want to push you out of that cage, that nest, is to get your own money as soon as possible. My dad did anyway. Yeah, I actually moved out of the house when I was 18. But yeah. uh, we, the, the team became profitable almost immediately. Sure. Um, um, and it is up until today. But, but uh, yeah, if, we, if, we can't, if I can't give my mom a good enough show, then uh, this might not be able to translate into the general public, which is kind of where I thought the future had to be. Yeah. Uh, because at this point, we're starting to lose a bit of the – the grassroots scene as the Fast and Furious movies and the whole wide body kits and stuff like that started getting a bit of a stigma. Sure. And it was less cool yeah. by maybe that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and saw some of the drifting, you know, and, and uh, I saw, I went to one of the, the D1, the Japanese D1 drift events uh, they had it in Southern California. And mm-hmm. at first I just didn't even understand what was going on. Sure. But it looked like pretty, it looked like fun what the drivers were doing. Yes. So I said, okay, that looks like something different, and I've got a little extra cash, so why don't I build a Nissan 240SX and yeah. go have some fun with it? Sure. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, but at the same time, we were still doing some work with, uh, with Honda at the moment, and they said, you know, we'd prefer you to not be in this Nissan thing because you actually are still getting some photos and stuff in the magazines. Yeah. Uh, maybe not doing that well in the competitions, but... <laughs> Uh, we'd rather you in a Honda car. And I said, well, flow me a Honda S2000, which is your really only real S- rear-wheel rear drive car that you have. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we'll build it out. So uh, 2005, we built the Honda S2000, and I did four drift events, and we did, I think, 10 drag events. And with the four drift events that I competed in with this Honda S2000, I got more exposure than all of these drag racing events. And I said, well, maybe this is the right time to sort of... To make the switch. To make the switch. Um, 2006, we said, okay, we're going to retire the drag car and we're going to start a two-car drift program for the same money 
that we were running the one drag car. Mm-hmm. We could do two professional drifting cars. Okay. And But I said, I don't think I can go out there and win these events, and I want to be a team that can go win, so let's find a driver that could win. And at the time, uh, Tanner Faust was doing really well driving, but he was having trouble getting a car that was reliable. Sure. I believed we could build a very competitive car, but I couldn't drive it to win. Uh, so Frederick, uh, sorry, excuse me. So Tanner Faust and I had made some conversation, had some conversations, and and we hired him as a driver to drive. What we call like the A car. Yeah. So we built a, a Nissan 350Z. Um, because he didn't have any manufacturer relationships, uh, and went out and I think we were third in the championship uh, the first year, and then mm-hmm. he won the championship the next two years. And at that point, I said, "Okay, well, I'm still struggling driving, and I'm having trouble driving and running the program and building these cars." You know, I said, "You know what? Let me just step back from driving and focus on building the cars and running the team, and let Tanner, who's such a good driver." Uh, drive. Um, in 2008, uh, we started working with Scion, and uh, they were ha- struggling a bit with the team that they were working with, trying to get wins. Sure. Right? They said, okay, we really like the drifting scene, and but we're having trouble with our team. I said, look, we'll build you a car that I think will be very competitive, Scion TC, we'll convert it to rear-wheel drive, and we'll have Tanner drive it, uh, um, and but I want to do something different. Can you get us one of these NASCAR V8 engines? And this was when Toyota was first coming into NASCAR, mm-hmm. and they had this pushrod V8 that had nothing to do with the factory engine, no. but it sounded freaking crazy, yeah. and it was something that it was super exotic. Mm-hmm. And they said, and the Scion people were like, I don't know, we don't know anybody. You know, Scion's a Toyota brand but they didn't have that much connection with the Toyota people, let alone the people that are building these the NASCARs. TRD, yeah, the engines. So I happen to know people that knew people and were able to connect TRD with the Scion people, and they flowed us a couple of used NASCAR engines. We had them rebuilt to our spec uh, from a company called Ed Pink Racing Engines here yep. in Southern California. Uh, you're probably seeing a, a, a similar thread through this whole thing, which is Southern California automotive industry. Yes, the, the 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 street racing you know Toyota was based here you know these engines all this stuff is so being in Southern California was a huge help um, just want a little sidebar there look also want to say Ed Pink also related to the Pink's hot dogs are they is he really uh, as far as someone told me he was <laughs> I gotta ask him next time so I, see I those swear it was like a brother or was an uncle that started it I think so but the, any of the listeners out there want to confirm this if they if it's if someone tells his old lies, I purely blame Kyle Hyatt for that, who did enjoy his Scion socks. I was more a Scion mixtape person. Kyle liked the socks and the lip balm. But, you know, different things. Scion had great swag. Yeah, sure. the best. The best <laughs> swag by far out of... I don't think anyone's going to ever beat Scion swag. By far the best. So, great relationship with Scion. Yeah. Amazing people over there. Really fun cars. They let us kind of do whatever we wanted. Like They're like, hey, we want to go drift. And I said, I want to be competitive. I want to do something exotic. I want to build, put a the NASCAR engine. engine which in sounded your- great. Watch it drive. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. They're like, no problem. If you get this cool content and some fun exposure with the car, we're down do with it. it. Yeah. Um, so I think we, ha- we won an event, which was the first time they had won an event with a Scion vehicle. Uh, they were super stoked. I think we ended up second in one of the championships. Mm-hmm. 
uh, kind of fast forwarding to 2010, uh, and Tanner's like, look, I'm going to go full-time rally car cross racing. And Tanner's super talented guy where he's racing rally and rally cross and hosting shows and, you know, playing video games, dating models and jet setting and doing all this stuff. And he had, he had accomplished everything there was to accomplish in drift. And it was like, dude, I get it. Yeah. Um, and kind of looked at the horizon and said, who, who, uh, looked at the, you know, who, who could we bring in to fill Tanner's shoes? And at the same time, Cyan was coming out with the, the TC generation two, which is replacement. So we're going to build a new car. Uh So it seemed like the right moment for him to retire. Let's bring in another driver. And uh, Frederick Osbo, Norwegian driver, uh, but, you know, uh, went to university in, in Norway where I think they did most of the in the schooling and in, in the work in English or something because he's, he's, he reads and writes better than I do. And, and I'm educated and he speaks, here. He speaks great Japanese too. <laughs> Super bright guy, great driver. And ridiculously good looking. Let's also say that. Yeah. So uh, he, he, he had a great... Um, a lot of potential, mm-hmm. but he 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 wasn't he wasn't up to to speed on the competition aspect. A lot of talent in his driver, yep. Uh, but needed to figure out the form of the drift format to really get the performance. Um, so he and I had some conversations, and I said, "Look, I'll build you a great car. I can help you with I think some performance on the track." And then we were able to put a, a deal together, um, and uh, kind of the rest is history. You know, he started off as. Uh, I think tenth or twelfth in the in the championship, and then each year got better until he won the championship uh, in 2015, and then now today the most winningest Formula Drift driver in history. Yeah, so he's doing all right for himself. Yeah, and and again now you know Frederick is he does the events here with us uh, with the Formula Drift events. He has his own program in Europe. Uh, he goes to Japan and China and drifts. Uh, he's and then he's got his stunt driving in between and everything else he does. Yeah, so. Uh, he absolutely has a uh, successful career uh, in motorsports. It's it's great. And so, but what about yourself? So obviously you're still passionate about it. How often do you get to go out and drive any of your cars or like not have to focus mostly on being team owned, but when do you get to go out and have fun kind of thing, I should say? Yep. So uh, the reality, you know, I only tell close friends this and, and, and uh, listeners of your podcast, um, but I mean, by the time I was, you know, in 2005, you know, by the time I was probably 28 years old, I was burnt out. Yeah. And I, I'm still kind of burnt out today of driving. Okay. Just so many years of sitting in that hot car and sitting in line and waiting and then doing a drag run and then braking or winning, whatever it was. It's like, I felt like I had accomplished everything I tried to accomplish. And then it was, now I just love building cars and I love building the Papadakis Racing they call it a business sure. and working with sponsors and, and working with the drivers and, and helping where I can. So instead of being more dri- doing more driving, you're being more driven now is what you could say. Uh, the focus uh, it has, has moved. Yeah, totally. So speaking of that then, obviously the new car that you've got this year is the new Toyota Corolla. Yes. Now you did that last year, but this was not the one that you've done this year because while it may look a little bit similar, that's all totally new totally changed or whatnot from because it was the you got like one of the like concept car tie in the chassis kind of thing how's that yeah so can you tell us a bit about how that worked so so when you work with sponsors Mm -hmm. uh some sponsors like rockstar energy drink say look drink our drink promote it let everybody know how good it is yep 
and uh, run the sticker and, and you know, brand awareness. Others, like Nexon Tire, who we work with, say, use our tire. You know? Yep. We work with Lucas Oil. Use our oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we, we work with companies that make good products. That way we can continue to win and authentically use their product. Sure. When it comes to a vehicle manufacturer, it becomes much harder because it's such... It's the whole everything, yes. right? Um, and especially when your vehicle manufacturer that you work with only really, they have a front-wheel drive car that you want to compete with, and it, the rules are you only can have a rear-wheel drive car. So to give you a little bit of context of, of what is going on in the background is, is Toyota says, look, we want to continue to support you guys. We really love the exposure we get in drift, and mm-hmm. we love the demographic, and, and we think it's a lot of fun, right? Sure. We love to see our cars do that. Uh, but we have this new Corolla coming out, and there is going to be literally two of them available in January of 2018. We want you to – we'll give you one of them. The other car, we need to hold on to that because we need to do photo shoots and do our normal media stuff. And we'd like you to turn that into a competitive car by April. And it's like, uh – is there a plan B? Is there some other? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure, Stefan. There, no pressure whatsoever. So that was kind of that was the deal. They said, "Look, we want to promote the the Corolla. The IM that you were running in 2017 uh, is now going to be um, no longer sold. Yep. So this is the opportunity that you have." And I said, "Okay, I guess the answer is yes." Yeah, we're not going to say no. And and uh, you know the the reality is, <clears throat> like I take a breath here because it's kind of, kind of getting deep again, but. I like I love to do things that are really hard to do and having a car that no one's drifted before or never one's even really seen before yes and then convert it into a rear wheel drive car and then also be competitive with it in a short period of time just seems like a huge endeavor that that's just compelling yeah. uh, I don't want to do that my whole year but if it's like okay we're going to start this in January 1st, and we're going to finish this in April. I can see the end, so we'll take on a big project like that. I don't want to live my life all year like that, um, even though it's sort of turned on like in a little bit like that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So we took the project on, and in secret, at our shop here in, in Hawthorne, California, we built we tore the car down and built it into a rear-wheel drive competitive drift car in, in four months and went out there and actually won the first event which was never in the plan it just everything just came together uh so that's one of those moments in your life where you say okay let me step back and let me really absorb this yeah, because let me, let me enjoy this, this is, one for the moment yeah. this may never happen again in my lifetime sure yeah so i mean it is a race car so it's a little bit different the corolla road car what uh what are the i mean what's the power difference between the two Yep, so the factory car, I don't even know if they've... The, the factory car is like 160 or 180 horsepower, yeah. four-cylinder, front-wheel drive, naturally aspirated, and then we run a 1,000 horsepower, still a four-cylinder, yeah. uh, turbocharged and nitrous. So so let's say the engine without the turbo makes 250 horsepower. Then we turbocharge it, and it makes 850 horsepower. And then we put 150 shot a horsepower nitrous shot on top of that. And then all together, it makes a thousand horsepower. Um, that's the combination that we run in this, this, this Corolla. So we can keep these tires spinning at a hundred miles an hour. And that's the level of the drifting has gotten to, to where the, the, the 
tires we use a two two seventy five wide tire, which is not exactly narrow. No, right, and it's really sticky. You know, Super the, the, sticky. The tires that that we run now are, are really sticky. There's a lot of speed involved in drift. It's mm-hmm. not just pulling the handbrake and and trying to do donuts on ice or something like that. It's uh, there's a lot of speed involved. So you need horsepower to to turn those tires at these high speeds. Yeah, I mean, I think from memories in the Formula Drift series, like the highest horsepower like racing series in the world comparison, if you balance it out, I think Formula Drift, the the drifting series that we run has no engine rules. Yeah, so the, but it's um, whatever you want. But like the average like horsepower per car, like a a, sm- a low horsepower car in the series is like eight fifty, right? Eight fifty, you're at a at, at a low. Yeah. If you if you come out with a six or seven hundred horsepower car, it's not even, you're probably not going to do that well. That's like Pro Two. Yep. And then uh, you know on the high end, it's a thousand eleven hundred. Some of the supercharged V8s make like twelve hundred foot pounds of torque. Yeah. Uh, and then they get to the point to where they're just ripping tires to shreds in less than two runs and you got to hold them together for two runs. So the limitation has now been, uh, back to tires and, you know, I mean, kind of motorsports is typically there's a cycle of what sure. is your limiter and then you work on that limiter. And then, and then what you, is the next limiter? Yeah. So yeah. you get, as you mentioned, when you were talking about this is a thing for power, what breaks, then how do we reset and then go back forward? So with that being said, how do you then, how is the, the work, for example, if it's like tires, for example, now you've got your sponsor next and that you work with, how do you, how do those discussions go in regards to say, well, my car's a thousand horsepower. How do you, how do you able to plan and talk to like develop that technology? What's that process? How do you work with your sponsors to make these things happen? The engine program, the engine program, either be the engine, any one of your sponsors that you work with to develop it further. How does that work? Because obviously you've got a small team here, but say if you're talking about the car in general, Toyota's probably got a few more people on the payroll than you guys do. So the expertise is within the team, actually. Okay. Um, We work with marketing individuals Mm -hmm. at Toyota and we work with, um, you know, PR, like the public relations and such like that. The technical end, it really is up to the team. Okay. Um, and they say, hey, this is what we want you to run. This is the car we'd like you to use. And they, they, they're nice enough to give us freedom to kind of build what we'd like. Yep. Uh, we have such a – there's a misconception that a manufacturer or a tire company or whatever it is might really – they can help us hugely – by working with the team and saying, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And then helping to develop what we need. Sure. A lot of the time, they don't allocate resources internally to help the teams because they're busy building road tires and yeah, stuff so like that. Yeah, I was going to say, because obviously Nexa probably sell more road tires than they do drift racing tires, I'm going to guess. Yep. So, And they probably so, make a bit more profit off the, the road tires as well, I guess, than the drifting tires. So interestingly enough, so these are good comparisons. So as far as Toyota's concerned... They have their Corolla, and we modify it and we run it, but not much of what we do in this application is going to go back to changing the the road car that much. Sure. Uh, but for Nexon, it actually does. Um, they We have to use a DOT tire in, in drift, mm-hmm. and the tires that we run, these competition tires, are actually widely used by high-performance street drivers and then also the autocrossers. Oh, it's okay. the same thing. So. Sure. Uh, they'll actually send out engineers to test days and take data and say, okay, when we revise these tires in the future, what are the changes that we'd like to see? And they'll get a bunch of data, and then they'll put those into the next revisions. Because we're not allowed to run special drift tires. They have to be their normal tires that they sell. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I'm kind of all over the place. Sorry about that. No, you go wherever you want to, Steph. It's absolutely fine with me. So 
Um, so a company like Toyota will have an initiative to go NASCAR racing, and they have a whole engine building and wind tunnel and all of these things to help mm -hmm. that. But they don't. But so they have initiative to help on the technical end of NASCAR. For drift, they help us with marketing. Sure. They supply us with a vehicle. They build us cool um, posters and ads with the car and, yeah. and you know, help promote us. And we promote them by running the car. So that's the relationship more on the Toyota side. Uh, and then we have other companies like AEM Electronics that we work with that are totally invested. Where the, the items, items that we might need, the functions we may need in like the computers or the gauges or the dash mm -hmm. or fuel pumps, yep. we're directly communicating that with the research and development for the company sure because they know that the stuff that we need is similar to what other racers need yeah so i'm going to assume for example if you've got it in your pro drift car then the person the pro 2 series they might want to say well if they've got that that's what i'm going to try and get into yes that sort of technology for on the a say for example using aem as the example and then maybe a grassroots drift they can make a smaller less version a little bit down from there that maybe a grassroots person will want to be interested in getting and that's, yes, and exactly, and that's the benefit of companies, us working together. It's not just stickers on the car. Yeah. We're actually utilizing the, the product, and we don't have to go out and plug the product everywhere mm -hmm. that we go because you can just, if you know enough on, about your car that you're planning on modifying it, you can look at our car and say, oh, they're using, they're actually using that sure. product that I could get for mine. We don't have to go and hold it up and say, hey, yeah. we use the, the you know, so -and -so. This, the so-and-so thing. Yeah. Um, and so speaking of that, what is the relationship between you guys as the fab the builders, I should say, and the driver, Frederick? What I mean, how does that work in regards to setting the car up and things like that? How does that come into play? I, we, Frederick and I and whoever we're oh, working whoever with, drivers, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a communication of what we feel the design of the car or the modifications we're going to do the car that will help the performance the most. And that's where a lot of people will get conf As a car builder, you want to always have the trickest bits, mm -hmm. right? You always want to have the most cutting-edge stuff because sure. you could say, look at this cool titanium widget that does whatever and makes this much horsepower. Yep. Unless it helps the end goal, which is to win more events, it probably doesn't belong on the car. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of used that as uh, a lesson that I'll teach a lot of the drivers. Like, look, let's have a conversation. What do you think you need to do better in these events? What is your limiter? Yep. So he's like, well, if I had a better handbrake or if, or if I had more horsepower at 3,000 RPM. Or, and then so, we, so then I'll go back and try to get that for them. And that's the, the, the rotation that we'll have with uh, communication and then updates and upgrades on the car. Sure. And then obviously I'm catching you a few days before you go out to a race this weekend. So what is the preparation or what's the preparation involved in preparing for an event? And then after the event, what's the, I mean, because you obviously travel. So what's, can you tell us a little bit about that? Number one function, it will be reliability. Mm -hmm. So after we get done from an event, we're going to say, okay, what parts have been used, you know, X amount of days or runs or whatever, do they, need, they need to be changed out and we'll change those out. What are the, so those are the things on the top of the list. What do we need to do to make the car fresh and reliable through the next event? Then we'll have, those are the needs. The wants list are the conversation that I had with the driver. Do you want, you know, more horsepower? 
Do you want us to try some different uh, suspension? Do you want us to whatever it is? And then we'll try to – and I'll also have my list of uh, updates that we want to do on the car. Like maybe there's some lightweight carbon doors that we wanted to build for the car that we didn't have time on the initial build yep. that now later in the season we have some opportunities to do that change to the car. So we'll implement those throughout the season as well. Um, so in between the events, this is, is it a com those, that combination. Okay. And then – but. How how does the car get from your workshop here to the racetrack then, for example? Yep. So our, our uh, we have a truck and a, and a big enclosed trailer yep. that holds the car, spare parts for the car, uh, tools. It's the mobile shop. Yeah. Uh, so who gets the, the job of driving that then? <laughs> so we have Aldo Villagran, yeah. who's not only uh, he not only drives the truck, but he's the fabricator and uh, he's a technician on the cars as well. Um, like he built a whole roll cage and a bunch of fabricated stuff on, on the car. He's working late nights. So all of us w wore many hats within the team. You know, when you only have, you know, four or five people, so but you have next question, 12 how many jobs. People, yeah, how many people are on the team? Yeah, there's three of us that are full-time year-round. Mm -hmm. During the season when we're fabricating, we'll bring in another two uh, to help us. We'll bring the whole total of the team during to five during the off-season. And then... During the race weekends, we bring in an extra uh, three. So the fabricators that are at the shop fabricating are not necessarily the same ones that go to the track. Okay. That are the ones that are wrenching and like changing transmissions and, and uh, changing tires in between rounds. We'll have other um, uh, other guys like Mario and Mike that'll come out that'll that'll work on the weekends. They the, the, these are guys that have normal nine to five jobs, usually technicians at, at one of them's a, a technician at an automotive dealership the other one works at a, a body shop doing you know high-end repairs and stuff like that so all year long they're practicing wrenching and then on some of these event weekends they'll come out and then go wrench, wrench on hopefully a not real wrench race too car. much because frederick doesn't put it into the wall or someone hits him like that hopefully it's all a nice they're not too busy than the weekend let's say that but so so that's the skill right is we need to have people that not, not only know how to work on these cars very quickly but in a pinch be able to get the thing back out there if sure. a wheel fell off, yeah. or if a suspension got ripped off or something. And then, so we've talked about the drag racing, the drift racing. Is there any other racing that you've been involved in of your time with Papadakis Racing? Uh, from 2000, I think, 8 to 2010 or so, um, I raced off-road trucks for a little bit uh, in short course. Okay. So uh, Lucas, um, the Lucas Off-Road Racing has a short course off-road series based in Southern California, mostly. Uh, and I went out to one of the events, and I just fell in love. I said, look, this is brings me all the way back to my RC car so days. I was going to ask. It's like just a big, essentially, an RC car that you can drive yourself. Yeah, and, and that was when I was 15 years old or 14 years old. That's what I wanted to do. As I saw, I, there was Mickey Thompson off-road. Yep. And I said, I want to drive those trucks. But the reality is I'm never going to be able to drive one of those trucks because I'm so, some dude with an RC car, and I don't have a family I don't, I don't even that's like saying i want to be an astronaut sure <laughs> you know and um so uh somehow you know 20 years later or 30 years later i'm like oh i can make this might actually be able to happen i could actually go race these trucks so i looked i bought a, i bought a used off-road truck yeah and the thought was these things are going to be in stadiums in the next two years so I'll make an investment now, learn how to build the trucks or work on the trucks, learn how to drive it, and then that'll be my next career. So I'm going to be in these stadiums, and I'm going to be an off-road truck driver. That's it. Uh, it didn't pan out like that. Watch out, Grave Digger. Here I come. <laughs> um, 
I did okay driving them, but I wasn't at the top level. Yeah. Uh, we did okay prepping them, but we weren't at the top level. Uh, and even if we were, uh, the series didn't end up in stadiums in two years. It ended up, you know, their next track that they had was Reno. Yep. And the next one was Lake Elsinore. So I was like, okay, this is not going a full pro setup as I thought it was going to be. Um, and even though it was the most fun I've ever had in a vehicle mm-hmm. racing these trucks, I mean, imagine going coming out of a turn in a truck, going onto the straightaway, and you go over a jump next to like five trucks in front of you and like five trucks behind you, and then two of the trucks in front of you get together, and they start cartwheeling down the straightaway, and you're like, oh, my God, this is a Michael Bay movie. Sure. And you're going through the action. And you're getting covered and, in mud. And, and, and you're, uh, hold on a second here. Don't just watch it. You're in a race right now, and you got to get back in your frame of mind. Okay, I, these trucks are tumbling in front of me. I got to get around them and not crash into them and try not to lose the position and continue to race. I mean, it's the most epic thing I think my brain has ever been through. Uh, and I wanted to continue to do that forever. But the fact that the reality was it just wasn't uh, in the cards. Sure. And um, you had to go win championships in Formula Drift instead. And we, in, you know, in par- I was trying to do this while we were running the whole drift sure. program. And it just was uh, unsustainable. Yeah. And I said, okay, I guess we're going to retire the truck. <laughs> and I'm going to focus again on the main business, which was the, the drift team. And, uh, and we've continued to be successful with it. And I'm still having fun. Don't get me wrong. Um, on the side, and I don't talk about it much, but I do race uh, bicycles, actually. I do some, a lot of mountain bike racing. Um, and... This is fun now because I can work on sort of instead of an engine or the car, I kind of now I'm the engine. Sure. So I work on trying to, you know, eat healthy and, sure, and get fit, get fit and things like that. And now it's I'm fitter, the engine. I should say. Yeah. And, and so that's fun. Uh, so that's where I get my competition. And there's not as many out. cars like tumbling over in front of you, hopefully. There's dudes on bikes and blood, so yeah, it's actually. <laughs> as long it, as they don't cover you in it, it's okay. Totally fine. It's falling <laughs> over. But um, so if you had any advice for someone that was wanting to get in or try and understand to get into this to the automotive industry or automotive motorsport industry, what advice would you give them before we sign off? Yeah, so I guess ask questions asked a lot. And, I, and let me preface this by saying I was there was a lot of opportunities here that were timing were really worked out, mm-hmm. you know, like the import, the street racing scene was really starting to get huge in Southern California right when I got my license. Yeah. The import drag scene was getting huge and Fast and Furious came out right when I was trying to do my, start my professional career. You know, when I, we did the drifting, it was right when drifting started really blowing up here. Um, uh, but not everything, you know, like the off-road truck racing didn't pan yeah. out. So it's not everything. As well, you've also worked very hard at these things. It's not like you were given at every stage i mean you're very driven and you put a lot of hours in here so that's kind of it's putting the effort in at the right time um and i would say that from literally my freshman year of high school when i wanted to do rc cars till (laughs) uh till like four o'clock when i had to scare you to get your attention yeah it's that is the most important thing in my life, you know, now I'm married and now I have a three-year-old and the priorities do change a bit. Um, but I remember being 20 years old and literally talking to my girlfriend and thinking back how horrible it was, but like, no, you're, you'll never be first because the motorsports and the car stuff is first. Yeah. And I sincerely meant that. 
because that's what I was really trying. I wasn't trying to build a long-term relationship with her, which was probably really apparent after she heard that. Yeah. Uh, But I was trying to build a career, and and so this is these are the these are the the take homes take homes. It was surround. I was surrounded myself with like-minded people that really wanted to be around cars. And I surrounded myself with people that were better at it than I was so I can continue to learn from them. I practiced it as much as possible because you can read books or talk to people, but unless you actually get your hands and do it, uh, you're not going to really learn how to do it. Sure. Um, I effed up a lot of stuff. I said, you know what? I might not know how to work on my car, but I'm going to try. And if I don't, if I don't succeed, then I'll, you know, then, you know, I'm going to pull my transmission out of my car. Yeah. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to read a book and figure it out. As long as there's not too many bolts left over, it's totally fine. And I would have bolts left over and put it back together and the thing would break. And then I would later find out what that bolt was for. Exactly. And then I would never let that happen again. But it's not about today or next week or next month. It's like you're always sort of building um, and, and, and it's just full immersion. So you're saying it's definitely the 10,000 hours. Yeah, and and unless you immerse yourself in it, I don't know how you would ever get to 10,000 hours. Sure, sure. Yeah. And then if anyone wants to find you guys online or yourself, where is the best place they can find you online? Yep, so Steph Papadakis is my Instagram handle, S-T-E-P-H Papadakis. I'm sure it's it's, it's in the listing here. Um, yeah. Facebook, uh, Papadakis Racing, uh, those are the main two places. Starting to do more stuff on YouTube, but literally just... You go on Google, type in Papadakis Racing. I mean, everybody's pretty smart. If you're listening to the podcast, yeah, you, you know could, what you're doing you on the internet. You find it. Yep. But, Stefan, I really want to thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. It's been a real good chat with you. Um, also, for our listeners, obviously, like I tell you each week, please leave us a very favorable review. At least five stars. We don't ask for anything less than five. I want everyone to give us at least 12 stars, but you can only give us five, so we make do with five. Also... Make sure you subscribe someone else to the podcast. They don't need to know about this. Just subscribe them. Make sure they download it and listen to it. They'll love it. That's absolutely sure. If you want to find me online, you can find me at No Breaking, N-O-B-R-A-K-I-N-G on Facebook and Instagram and at NoBreaking.com. And until then, we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.